Well, this morning we have Harry Long back with us this morning from a, for, a former pastor at Sycamore until he retired, I think, fairly recently. So we're, we're happy to have him back with us this morning to open the word to us. He has uh, started a, a series in Revelation, and we'll continue that this morning. We're going to read uh, two passages not in Revelation in kind of preparation for that. So uh, John chapter 13, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then also, 1 Corinthians 13, famous love chapter, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we come to you this morning in need of your word. Father, speak to us through your word, by your spirit, that we may live lives that reflect who you are and your love for us to those around us. Ask your blessing on Harry as he comes and brings us the word today. As these things in Christ's name, amen. It's really good to be with you again. Uh, Last week I was told after the service that some of you couldn't hear and uh, you couldn't hear clearly, at least it sounded outside the envelope. And I, so I wanted to ask, can you hear me clearly this time? We've alerted, we did kind of sound checking, maybe that very good. There's nothing more boring than coming to church and not being able to hear the message, is there? It's just, unless it's actually hearing the message and thinking that was even more boring than when I didn't hear it. So I hope that's not your experience uh, this morning. Uh, Anyway, last week we did start our series in the first chapters of Revelation. It's a series on the letters to the seven churches. Uh, Last week we looked at chapter one. It was foundational. It is news from heaven, news from heaven uh, to the church, the church at large. And the seven churches just represent the typical problems in churches. And we're going to go through each of those churches one by one. I'll be with you this month and next month, except for one Sunday when we have scheduled a visit, a long planned visit to be with our grandchildren in Tennessee. Uh, So we have time to look at uh, each of these uh, churches. Uh, This time it is uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus. But I want you to remember all the way through this, this is news from heaven of grace and peace from him who loves us. News from heaven of grace and peace from him who loves us. And obviously, I'm not going for those of you who couldn't hear last week, go through all the things we developed in that in the first chapter, but that's the context. Now, before we turn to the, uh, the actual passage in Revelation, 
I want to read one more passage because Ephesus was a real church. We can read about it in Acts when it was planted by the Apostle Paul. And learning about the church when it was planted will just open up this letter to the, uh, to the church in Revelation. And without knowing that background, if you're not being reminded of that background, there's a lot that might just kind of pass over our heads because the church was planted in an unfriendly city. It was a hostile religious environment. If we think our culture is getting hard and hostile, and, and we do to some degree, just picture what it was like when the Apostle Paul first went into Ephesus. If you want to, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 19. I'm just going to read the passage without uh, opening it up, without expanding. It's not a sermon on this, but just reading the history of how the church was planted at Ephesus will set a great context for you for our uh, message this morning. Uh, Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. That's enough right here. There are 12 uh, men at Ephesus who still believe in kind of an Old Testament way. They heard about John's baptism. They hadn't heard about the Messiah. And so when they uh, believed they spoke in tongues, it was the last uh, expression of that in, in the book of Acts, in the planting of the church, the last experience of Pentecost uh, recorded for us. But they experienced it uh, them, themselves. And I, I won't uh, read more than that. Let's skip down to verse 25 so that you can uh, see how hard a culture it was in chapter 19. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That's what the way of Christ uh, was called. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in, in related trades and said, Men, you know we received, it in, in, uh, we, we received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. They were shouting one thing, some another. Uh, most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison uh, for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Oh, that'd be a great passage to preach in our culture with the last couple of years we've had, uh, wouldn't it be? But it just gives you the context for Ephesus, but I want to go to the end of chapter 22, the, uh, 20 also. The Apostle Paul travels on, and then he stops by Ephesus on his way back. He says in verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom, this is chapter 20, verse 25, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the king, excuse me, you know, the light is not great here, and I didn't bring my glasses today. If I stumble on the word of God, it's my fault, um, not the words. Okay. Start, try again. Now, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day uh, with tears. Let's just go down to the uh, verses 36 uh, through the end of the chapter. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. He was headed back to Jerusalem, told them that this would be the last time that he would see them, they would see him on earth. Something about their weeping because of that. It tells us about their relationship with Paul, doesn't it? They loved him, and he loved them. They were a church in a hard place. There would be savage wolves, false teachers that would come in. Among them, it was not an easy place to be a church. But they loved one another because of the love of God for them that the Apostle Paul had preached to them. And they responded with love and commitment to God. That's the founding of this church. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, last week we uh, did lay the, the foundation of, of uh, this whole passage. Who's, who's this angel? The angel, I think, really, I've really grown in my view of this. I think it's just the messenger. The word angel means messenger. 
And God is giving a message through John to the church. So he's writing to the leader of the church to read this to the congregation. But the leader does represent the personality of the church. A church takes on the personality of the one who is is leading. It's not that there are not many personalities in the church. But if a leader is going to allow heresy, then the church is allowing heresy. If the leader, as is in this case, loses his first love, the love that he had at first, the church will too. So the leader expresses the personality, the spirit of the church in that way as well. So uh, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the the angels of the churches, the, the leaders of the churches, representing the different types of churches, different personalities of churches. These are the the, the stars, the seven stars. And Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are the churches themselves. We are not the light of the world by ourselves and in ourselves. We're lampstands that carry the light of Christ. We become the light of the world as he indwells us. So we're, we're lampstands. Now, what does that phrase remind you of? And it says, Jesus walks among his churches. He walks among. There are two things that, I, that come to mind for me. One goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, it says that God, the voice of God walked among the garden, and they hid among the trees. There's a sense of God fellowshipping with his people. They belong together, but Adam and Eve have sinned, and when God walks among them, in the Garden of Eden, they hide because sin has separated. God was not content to let that separation stand that would have spelled hell for every single one of us if God had not acted in redemption. He promised our first parents that the seed of the woman and the Lord Jesus himself would crush the the head of the serpent, the devil who led them away. So there's a promise of salvation from the beginning. And then we find Jesus himself is called Emmanuel, God with us. He said to his disciples, the kingdom of God is among you in in himself. And as the Holy Spirit has descended upon us, uh, and now that atonement is made for sin, we are the temple of God. The kingdom of God is within us. Whatever church, whatever congregation, and in the world, in whatever generation in history, it's important for the church to remember we have a Savior who's personal. He walks among his golden lampstands. He is with Evergreen Presbyterian Church and within you as his temple. Isn't that something? Just think about that. This, is, this message is a blessing to his church. In the first chapter we read, blessed is he who reads these words, and who, blessed are those who hear and put them into practice. Realize this, the Lord Jesus, very personally, through the Holy Spirit, walks among his churches. He is with you, and he is within you as he has made you his temple. I know your deeds, your hard work, 
and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested, uh, that you have tested those uh, who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. As the Lord speaks through John to the church at Ephesus in this letter, he first commends them. How gracious is he is that in that? I believe this letter probably is the one that would be most addressed to the Presbyterian church in America. Why would I say that? Because the Ephesians were concerned about the truth. They did not tolerate the false teaching. As Paul had told them, be aware that savage wolves will come among you. They stayed vigilant, and they held on to the truth. And they are commended for that. And I don't believe that Jesus is being uh, wry or just setting them up with a false compliment to get the zinger in of what his criticism would be. He means it. Our denomination, our church, is concerned about the truth. No, we're not perfect. But we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We try to understand it correctly. We debate with one another over uh, different things, different understandings to try to get it right. But we haven't forsaken the Word of God. We haven't done what was happening in Ephesus as uh, there were those of the, that worshiped the goddess Artemis who tried to infiltrate the church. Our culture is trying to do that all the time. This is nothing new in our day and time. It's a constant for the church. And Jesus commends them for being committed to the truth. We could call this church a doctrinaire church because they have good doctrine. But it goes on to say they have uh, abandoned something. They have forsaken something. What could that be? Yet I hold this against you. Verse 4. You have forsaken your first love. I'm using the NIV, and I believe that many of you are using the ESV. I I cannot commence to you more highly using more than one translation when you study the Bible, because it'll give you uh, two, it's like stereo vision, two perspectives. And if if the translations vary in meaning from each other, you know that's something you want to study further to try to see what was so hard to translate. What's the issue? So I've held on uh, to the NIV, which was around before the ESV ever came in and didn't switch over because I didn't want to just get where I only had single vision. But I love the ESV too. I don't think we should be talking about which translation is better than the others. These are both really good translations. And they give two perspectives. The ESV says, for you have abandoned your first love. Forsaken, abandoned, they mean the same thing. There's something that is an act in this. It's not something that, oh, oh, this just happened to you. You've abandoned, you've forsaken your first love. Now, I believe that, does the ESV say the love you had at first? There, I think the ESV is better. Because We can think of our first love as the first person we loved. We can think of, well, Jesus is our first love. He's the most important love and miss the fullness that this passage is talking about. 
He's talking about the love they had at first. In response to God's love for them, they loved God in return. They heard through the Apostle Paul the command of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. This love encompassed all of their relationships with God, and, with, and it overflowed into their love with one another. We saw it when they were weeping when the Apostle Paul said, well, I won't see you again here on earth. It'll be in heaven. It's a love relationship. The love they had at first embraced all these relationships, and it first and foremost came from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And they responded in love for God. But as John himself, the one who wrote Revelation, through whom God wrote Revelation, he said in his first epistle, 1 John, he said, if you say you love God and don't love your neighbor, you're a liar. The love of God that fills our souls overflows to one another. So the church was a church that loved one another at first. But they were concerned about truth and they've forsaken the love they had at first. Oh, that doesn't happen, does it? I invite you to come to General Assembly with me sometime, or even just Presbytery, or perhaps even a session meeting, or just any church. When, you, when you're concerned about things, what's right, what we should do, what, what's wrong, and we can get so concerned about the truth that we forget we need to be also concerned about loving one another. The illustration that's always worked for me is uh, the, the human body. The truth is like the skeleton. If your body does not have a skeleton, then you're a mess, quite literally. My wife fell last summer at General Assembly and broke her hip, and then in the fall had to have a hip replacement, a second stage of it. When your skeleton isn't working, it hurts. If we lose uh, the sound doctrine of the Word of God, we're a mess as a church. But a skeleton by itself is a scary thing, right? It's dead. It doesn't have the flesh and blood, the warmth of life. You have to have both the truth and the love. And the truth that God so loved us that he sent his only son while we were sinners. The truth that Jesus said, this command I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you are to love one another. In Colossians, uh, Paul tells the Christians, forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Another, for those of you that, have, that you know, came from Sycamore, they go all the way back to the planting of this church here at Evergreen, uh, you'll, know, you'll recognize another operating image in my life is that the church is a fellowship of porcupines. We get close to one another until we stick each other. And then we don't like that, and we draw back from each other, and then we get lonely and cold. And, and the process, since we are not yet perfected, we will not be perfect with one another. But there is a love that can forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. So the truth of the grace of God and the gospel should feed our love for one another, and it shouldn't just become an argument to defend the truth. And Jesus, through John, is saying to the church at Ephesus, I commend you for holding to the truth, but you've forsaken the love you had at first. 
remember the height from which you have fallen and then do the things you did at first. Love shows itself in action. The way we tend to each other, the way we care for each other, the way we serve Christ. You know, there's, there's a, we, need, we can stop here and use the illustration of human love relationships to understand something about our loving relationship with God. Human loving relationships, to the two primary ones would be parent and child, the father and mother and their son, their, their child. We have a heavenly father who so loves us. All the news this week reminded me of one of the greatest examples of a father's love in human terms uh, and the leadership and responsibility and the stress of it in that movie, Pursuit of Happiness, starring, guess who? Will Smith. And because of the stuff that happened uh, this week, I just remembered as I was studying this passage, Will Smith and the Pursuit of Happiness uh, was homeless He had tried to sell some medical equipment that was out of date. He was evicted. His wife left him, and he uh, left him with his son. He didn't know what he was going to do. He spent the night in the subway trying to figure out what he would do, and he wanted to, to protect his son, and he turned it into a game and said they were hiding from the dinosaurs, and the son knew it was imaginary. He said, let's find a cave where we can hide, and they went and found the bathroom, and the highest stress point, this has fallen off of me and it's going to fall. Raise your hand if it, if it messes up and you can't hear me anymore. Um, Will Smith and his son were in the bathroom and someone started pounding on the door, the security guard, because they were supposed to, to everybody get out of the subway at a certain hour. It wasn't a place to shelter for the night. And Will Smith was just cuddling his son, saying, it's all right. We got to hide from these dinosaurs. But you can see the stress on his face. A father's love for his child is just in its most extreme, wonderful example is nothing compared to the love of our Heavenly Father who sent his son to give his life for us to pay for our sin, to open the doors of heaven to provide an eternal home for us. We just get glimpses of that. We can also see in human love relationships, the relationship between man and wife. There are different stages of love. And this is why I bring this up, because I think there are different stages of spiritual love between us and God. The first stage of human love, when you meet someone, is is a discovery stage. You're falling in love. You meet somebody that you're attracted to, but you don't know them, and you begin to get to know them so that you can know enough to know would you want to commit your life to them and ask that person to commit his or her life to you. Mary and I, when we met in college, would go to lunch and uh, in the cafeteria and we were getting to know each other. We'd get into conversations. If we didn't have a class or other commitment in the afternoon, we could just talk all afternoon. We'd see people coming through with their dinner trays. It was a discovery phase. Then the next phase is the commitment phase. When you know enough to know, I want to commit my life to you, and I ask you to commit your life to me. Will you marry me? 
Last week, an operating uh, illustration for our study in Ephesians is the graveyard shift. In this fallen world, we all live, we're working in the graveyard shift, and things are, are hard and difficult, but the sun is coming, the, del- the pun intended, deliberate. Jesus is called the morning star. That's the hope that we have when things are hard and dark and difficult here. You know, the, the sun is coming. Well, after Mary and I got married, I had that graveyard shift. I worked Thanksgiving. I worked Christmas. Uh, you had to work a year before you got any vacation. I began to think, wow, you know, when we were dating, we really wanted to be married because of all the freedoms and privileges of being married, right? And after I was married, it's like, I wish I was back in college and had those, that, those college hours and, and, and schedules. When you move into the commitment stage, responsibilities come in. But that's part of the romance, isn't it? And last week, for those of you who, who could hear, if it, when I shared the song with you about the graveyard shift, wasn't that romantic to talk about how hard we were working in that midnight shift? It didn't feel romantic at the time. There's a stage in discipleship when we discover the love of God for us, and we respond in, with, in love for Him, and we receive Him as Lord and Savior. And then we can move into a stage where we're having to learn things. It's, you, if you remember that book, My Heart, Christ's Home? If, you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, find it and get it. It's a great uh, little book, given the image of Jesus coming into your life. And he just starts knocking on all the rooms of, of your house, including that closet where you're trying to hide the dirt, uh, etc. And he begins to grow you up and sanctify you. The commitment stage is wonderful. It is work. It is discipleship. Jesus trained his disciples for three years. And how many times did he say to them, oh, you have little faith? They were having to grow in their faith. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and sent out into the world. In, in human relationships, when you get married, because I want, to, I want to live out our commitment. I want to live out our love. And we want to work on our marriage to make it better. And there's always that hope that when there's something that's frustrating, that's, whether it's a circumstance like the job is hard, have no vacation, or our relationship, there are things that I didn't know you didn't like about me. You know, I was the most perfect husband on the day I got married. Ever since then, I've gone downhill. I've actually gotten better, but I'm just more aware of how, how I don't, I'm not the, the, the greatest, the perfect husband in the world. It's the same way in the Christian life. We grow in our understanding of our sin as we grow as Christians in our understanding of the grace of God for us. But there's a point, and this is, this is the important point in application passage about losing your first love, that you realize in, in your marriage, in your human love relationship, hmm, my spouse is not going to change the way I wanted my spouse to change. And I'm not changing the way my spouse wants me to change. And you move from the working on the relationship to the I love you anyway stage. You know what? That's, that is the romantic promise in the marriage vows. I've never had anybody say uh, to, to me that they would want me to lead them in vows. When I, I've done a lot of weddings. And uh, nobody said, let our vow be, I promise to love and cherish for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poor, as long as you please me. That's just not very romantic. 
It's something unconditional. As long as we both shall live till death do us part. That's the commitment. Until we get to the point where we say, I love you anyway, we're always saying, I'm working on our loving relationship so that you'll please me better. There's a test in our Christian life. If we're thinking, I love God because he first loved me, and I think he's going to lead me into the life that I want. I think he's going to please me. He's going to bless me. He's going to make things easy. He's going to take away these problems. Guess what? Psalm 1 is the way of the righteous is, is blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffers. His delight's in the law of the Lord. There's delight in the Christian life, but it's not problem-free. And if we think that we will love God as long as he pleases us, then we are the kind of soil in the parable of the sower that when the heat of the day comes, it dies away because it really didn't have root. We weren't really committed to Christ. We were trying to use him to get our own agenda filled, to get God to please us. Those are stages of loving relationships, but here's the thing. How many of you that have been married for, for a long, long time, I bet you every single one of us have had the conversation of, oh, I wish it could be like it was at first. I wish it could be like when we were dating. Things are hard now, whether it's job, health, kids, you know, broken relationships, things not working out as, as well as you thought. It was just so easy when we were falling in love. There's a test in that. Are you in love with falling in love? That's the discovery phase. As a Christian, are you in love with the excitement you had at first as a Christian, and now it's become mundane and maybe a little bit boring? It's a rut. And you think that this passage is saying, You've abandoned your first love, the love you had at first, as I need to find that discovery stage again. Guess what? You, by definition, you can't find it. You're familiar with Christ. You're familiar with the gospel. You know the truths of Scripture. You've heard a thousand times how God loves you. Has it become boring to you? Well, there's, you can't get back to the discovery stage, but there's something deep in going through it. Now it's become so ingrained in me that I know God loves me, that I'm not afraid when I get that cancer diagnosis because I know heaven ahead. I'm not afraid when someone rejects me. It does hurt, but I know God's love for me. I'm not, uh, I'm not anxious about things falling apart in this life because I know they will. This is all transient. I know the things that are eternal. Put it this way, does the love of God uh, expressed for you in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is with you through the Holy Spirit, has become so ingrained in your life that you know nothing, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And you have a security of a loving relationship with him that'll carry you through whatever difficulties in this life. You'll either die in an early tragic death or you'll face the issues of elderliness that we've been through with our parents. It's uh, this mortal life is not fine. But if you realize 
This is the message of Revelation. This is the message of the whole Bible. This life is not all there is. We have heaven ahead of us. And I can live every day enjoying the blessings God gives me today because they're just foretastes of the best that is yet to come. You've matured in your loving relationship with God that's not in love with the discovery, but is a foundation that holds you up in the hard times. And when your needs are met in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess how you can treat one another? You can treat one another showing them love that God has given to you. But if you're looking at one another thinking, I need you to meet my needs, whether you're looking at your spouse or just somebody else in the church or just your, your parent, a child, what, I need you to meet my needs. You really say, I will love you as long as you please me. Instead of saying, my, need, my love needs are met in Christ. What does that look like? This is why I had 1 Corinthians 13 uh, read. Anthony read it before this sermon because we have a biblical description of what love looks like. This is often read at weddings, but it wasn't written to married couples. It was written to the church. It applies to married couples, but it was written to the church. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Does this describe Evergreen as a church? Every church wants to grow. Don't worship growth. But people in the world, if, they, if God is going to be at work in their hearts, what they will see in the church is whether or not you love one another, and it will show practically. Are you patient with each other? Are you kind? Do you envy one another? Do you boast? Are you proud? How many growing churches are proud churches because they're growing? That's a turnoff, really. To the world, it's not a turn off to the world that loves success and celebrity, but that's not falling in love with Christ. It is not, it is not rude, it is not self seeking, it is not easily angered. You're rude because you are self seeking. That's one of the basic reasons of rudeness. You don't care about the other person. If you're self-seeking, then you are easily angered. If you're easily angered, ask yourself, why am I easily angered? Is it because I'm self-seeking and the other person's not doing what I want? Don't just say, well, I just have a temper. It's, just, it's like I was born that way. It's not my fault. Devil made me do it. Am I self-seeking? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. See, love doesn't have no spine. We are commended when we hold to the Word of God as the truth, and we, don't, uh, and we stand against the, the false gods of this world. But don't be just the skeleton. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I like other translations that says, uh, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You may by temperament be a glass half empty sort of person, but when you're filled with the love of Christ, don't be just half filled. Be fully filled with the love of Christ and look at one another forgiving their offenses as God has forgiven you. 
and loving them, even if they are enemies. Don't return evil for evil. Does that characterize this church? We have to ask that as a denomination because we care about the truth and it's easy to get into arguments with each other. But do we hold on to both where we will love each other with the love that God has shown us? Or have we forsaken our first love? Now, that's the, the point of this passage. Let's just round it out uh, in closing. Uh, Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's not about losing your salvation. We don't lose our salvation. No one can snatch us from God's hands. But a church can cease to be a church. You can be right on the doctrine. But if you've lost the loving relationship with God and with one another, your kids are going to get turned off by that kind of church. And the church can die. So that can happen. I don't know how lively the church is in Ephesus today. It may have died. I didn't look that up. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Love is not to the exclusion of hate. We hate the sin, the sin though we love the sinner. The Nicolaitans were those who tried to incorporate. It's, it's kind of an obscure term, a term, but it's thought that they incorporated the worship of Artemis with the worship of God. There was some kind of compromise, and, and the Ephesians would have none, uh, none of that. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember I said Jesus walking among his churches reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Don't you long for that fellowship with God again? Jesus does walk among his churches. And if we hold on, not just to the truth, but to the love of God and his grace and peace expressed to us from him who loves us. And it overflows in love with one another. We don't earn our salvation, but it is proven. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And we are partaking of the tree of life even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be an encouragement to us that we would... Um, be reminded of the love we had at first, not mistake it for just discovering the gospel and the excitement of everything being new, but that we would be drawn to you because you love and care for us so that perhaps in the darkest moment of our lives, we would say with the psalmist, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Let our loving relationship with you that you brought to us through Christ overflow in our lives so that we would be able to show that love to one another. And that would make us truly be a light to the world as we are the church, the lampstand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. to the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the elders if they would uh, come forward as we would uh, distribute it. I'll, since you have the Lord's Supper every week, I'll try to, to point out just different facet of it each week. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. The Catholic Church has taken that in, in such a literal sense, saying it becomes literally 
his body and blood. But Jesus also said, I am the door. I am the gate. Didn't mean he had doorknobs and hinges. If you just take the sayings of Jesus and remember all of them, you think, what does this mean? These elements signify his physical death on the cross as he paid for our sins. And spiritually, they even go beyond that. Just as these elements are physical, they signify something greater than that, that he he swallowed the wrath of God in its entirety for us. God so loved the world that he sent his son to pay the payment for our sin. And as we take these elements to ourselves, we are taking into our hands and into our body the physical elements that signify our redemption through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. That's the love of God expressed for us. If you harbor uh, uh, an anger or a hatred, a grievance, an unforgiveness uh, towards someone else, consider what the love of Christ compels you to do, that you would 